Well, if you, if you had trouble waking up this morning, nah, 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 it was easy for me. Uh, South African time, I think it's about, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something right now, so I'm fine. I'm just wide awake. You know, just, of course, I was wide awake six hours ago, but that's another, another issue. Uh, as some of you know, I, I had spent uh, last week in Cape Town, South Africa at the uh, Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization. Uh, the organization that sponsors this has done this now three times, once in 1974 in the fairly well-known Lausanne Congress in Lausanne, Switzerland, and then in 1989 uh, the world evangelical leaders met again in Manila, and then this was the third one in Cape Town. Uh, 4,200 uh, representatives from 198 countries uh, come to study uh, what's been happening in the world over the past 20 years. And the world has certainly changed a lot. Uh, what has uh, happened to the church uh, over the past 20 years, and certainly a lot has happened over those uh, 21 years, and then to look at the challenges to the gospel. And there are uh, new, powerful challenges to the gospel that need to be examined as well. It's also a wonderful opportunity to network with people around the world. And out of Manila, for example, in 1989, uh, we measure that, that at least 300 international partnerships were spawned just by spending a week together and talking about how we can reach the world for Christ. And it was a, a really uh, challenging, informative, inspiring uh, week together. Many opportunities to talk with various folks about what's going on in their part of the world and to study how we together can reach the world for Christ. There's still a lot of work to do, but a lot of great things have been happening. It's really encouraging to notice uh, how the gospel is working in many places around the world. Uh, you can take some of the least likely places. For example... Uh, one lunch time, I spent uh, the hour with the Iran delegation. And uh, in Iran in 1979, when Khomeini uh, took over and declared that he was going to establish the first uh, kingdom uh, in, in the world, the first time really that Isl the Islamic kingdom would have been established in purity. That was back in 1979. When he did so, Iran had, we think, about 2,500 believers in the country. And today, after all of that attempt to impose the, the kingdom there in Iran, uh, the, the conservative estimates of the people who are there is probably that there are about a million believers in Iran uh, over these 29 years. And you just get stories like that where God is at work. I talked to one Pentecostal pastor in Iran who had become a Christian recently, planted a little church in his community, and now he's planted 50 churches in 20 cities. And God is obviously at work in some dramatic and even miraculous ways in that country. There are many other instances of things like that. And so for someone from the West, it's very helpful just to get in, in an environment where people are telling you stories where God is working very powerfully, maybe in ways beyond what we normally see even in our own sort of deadened culture. On another occasion, uh, I was in a seminar on evangelism, and there were several speakers. One was a man, some of you might know, uh, Michael Ramsden, who is sort of the young Ravi Zacharias of UK. Uh, he's in Oxford and doing some really fine work there. He was uh, making a presentation on, on evangelism, and he said one of the exports of the Western church to the rest of the world is uh, cynicism about the gospel. Uh, we don't really believe the gospel is going to work. And he said, since we're in Cape Town, let me tell you a story uh, about uh, when I was in Cape Town just a couple of years ago. He said, a man I know who's nearly a billionaire uh, had invited uh, his peers, these were some other billionaires and multimillionaires, to come to a party, and he invited me to come and share the gospel. 
with these people who didn't know Christ. And he said to me, Michael, you can say anything you want to tonight, but just be sure that you share Jesus Christ and how you can trust in Him. That same party during the cocktails, another wealthy Christian businessman came up to him and said, Michael, I don't even know why you're here. You really ought to go home. This whole thing is going to backfire. It's going to be inappropriate. These men are going to resent it. And uh, it's going to make evangelism among these men even more difficult. So what's Michael to do? The last thing before he spoke, the host came up to him again and said, Michael, you can say anything you want to, but you have to share Christ tonight. So Michael got up and spoke and he said, for those of you who are preachers, I know you can understand what I'm saying, but honestly, I've never given a worse talk in all my life. He said it was so bad. He said, I don't think any of you have experienced, none of you could be this bad a preacher. But he said, I sat down after I talked and my face was just red hot with embarrassment. He said, I wanted to die. He said, I almost started crying. It was so bad. Here's this wonderful opportunity. And I just stumbled my way through it. He said, the host was very gracious. He got up after I spoke and he said, gentlemen, it's been great to have you here tonight. You'll find a, a little card right in front of your place there. And please fill out your name. And you got some things you need to fill in there. First of all, horizontally, you'll see five spots there. The speaker was fantastic all the way down to the speaker stinks. So you just fill in which one of those you want to fill in. Then he said, you'll see a little, another little column, a vertical column with five uh, things you can check there. One is that Tonight you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. Just check that one. Four would be that you didn't receive Jesus Christ as Savior, but you want to join a Bible study. Then three, two, and he said the last one was, don't ever invite me to one of these things ever again. So you fill out whichever one you want to. Gentlemen, thanks. To have, great to have you here. Good night. Michael felt so terrible. He went with his wife out to a little cabin outside of Cape Town to spend the night before he returned to UK. And uh, he said to his wife before they went to bed, look, when the host calls, which he probably will tomorrow, I don't care what excuse you make up, I just can't talk to him. Michael said he was up till 4 o'clock in the night. He just couldn't go to sleep. He was so disturbed by what a terrible job he had done. About 7.30 in the morning, and then of course he went to sleep at 4 o'clock, at 7.30 in the morning his wife aroused him and said, Honey, you know, the host has called and he will not take no for an answer. He insists on talking to you. So Michael stumbled over to the phone and said, Yeah, good morning. He, Men said, well, Michael, good morning. Uh, we had quite a night last night, didn't we? And Michael said, uh, yeah. And he said, uh, would you like to know how things turned out? And Michael lied. And he said, yeah, sure. And uh, <laughs> the men said, well, you know those boxes they were supposed to check? He said, that first number five box that people had received Christ, we had 37 last night. There were only 140 there. And he said, the next box, you know, where they, they didn't receive Christ, but they wanted to join a Bible study, there were 40 of those. And all the way down, he gave the numbers. And then the fifth one, don't ever ask me to any one of these again. There were five of those. And Michael said, I, I could hardly believe it. And he said, uh, I found out a year later that out of those five that said they never want to be invited again, three of them became believers in Christ. He said there are two conclusions that we can draw from this. Number one, the gospel works. And number two, doesn't have anything to do with you. Uh, and uh, it was just a challenge. Those are just, just some of the examples of things that we experienced there, and we do understand that we live in, a, in an age when we have become quite cynical about the power of the gospel, both in our lives and in the lives of other people. And sometimes we need to get out and look at what the Lord is doing. The church is growing uh, around the world. It's doing quite well.
in some very interesting places, and we're grateful for it. Now, when we look at our text this morning, which is Deuteronomy 4, verse 44, when we look at our text, what we see is that God, from all uh, ancient times with his people, has called us to a mission. And the danger is that we're going to become cynical about it. That the biggest problem in fulfilling the mission that God gave Israel is not the world religions. It's not the cultural resistance that they were going to face. It was not the persecution they would face from the Babylonians later or the Assyrians or anybody else. The biggest problem the Israelites were going to face was their own problem inside their own hearts. And we'll see what some of those problems would be. And God tells them right from the beginning that he's got a mission for them to go in and take over the land, take possession of it, to seize it, to establish their headquarters for his kingdom. And the biggest problem was going to be their hearts, their cynicism, their lack of trust, their lack of obedience. Some years ago, I belonged to a men's Bible study that met on Friday mornings. There were only about a dozen of us. We met in Shoney's. This was in Chattanooga, and the devotions was shared. We went in alphabetical order, and everybody had their turn. Well, one Friday morning, Ralph Payton, it was his turn to give the devotions. And Ralph said, this is my devotions this morning. Three words, trust and obey. Everybody stared at him. He said, gentlemen, I told you, it's three words. I just gave it. That's it. They stared at him. He said, that's it, really, honestly. Generally speaking, preachers are generally speaking, but honestly, that's it. (laughs) Trust and obey. Obviously, I remembered it. I don't remember all the other devotions the other guys gave, (laughs) but I remember that one. And you say, Wilson, let that be a lesson to you. Trust and obey. One of these mornings you're going to come in, I'm going to look at you and say, love God. (laughs) But that was the devotion. And that's exactly what Israel would have needed. Trust the Lord. Trust what He says to you. Trust His promises. Trust that He is who He says He is. Trust that He has a mission for you. Trust that He's given you the provisions for it. Trust that He'll take care of you. And gentlemen, obey what He says. It's that simple. That's what Moses is saying to the Israelites as they prepare now to go in and take the land. And the reason they're going to take the land is because he has a mission for them. Remember the mission was given to Abraham. I'll make a great nation out of you and I'll bless you. And I'll bless you so that you may bless the other nations. This is an international cause. So whatever the Lord is calling us to do, it is so that he can bless the world through us. And we're going to see what the problem is. The problem is with the nature of our relationship with Him, that we get it all wrong. And here what we're going to find in these extended chapters, especially chapters 5 all the way through 26, is that the Lord gives the covenant stipulations. That is, here are the terms of our relationship. Here's what's going to make it work for you. Here's how you're going to know me. Here's how we are going together to build the kingdom. God's going to build the kingdom through us, through this kind of lifestyle. And if you don't do this, it's not going to work. If you do this, I will use you in my mission to bless the nations. That's the whole point of the body, the central portion of Deuteronomy that we begin today. Let's take a look at it. We'll begin reading at chapter 4, verse 44. And you'll notice from the very first words, this is the law. 
that obviously he's starting another section. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 1, you see the words, these are the words. These are the words. This is the law. That's the reason that this is known as Moses' second great speech. He's already given his first one. Now here's his second one as it's introduced there in chapter 44. Let's, let's read through 521. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Amen. Well, gentlemen, let's take a look then at these verses, first of all, in chapter 4, very briefly. And notice that from verses 44 through 49, we're really being reminded here that our obedience 
is our purpose. So if we're going to look at our obedience today, that's the thrust of what we believe Moses is teaching here. Trust and obey. First thing you want to see is that we were made for obedience. That's the entire purpose of our calling. Uh, you'll, uh, you can, if you want to, you can either keep your finger right there in uh, Deuteronomy or turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or you can do both. Uh, and look with me to how Paul puts it as he describes our redemption there right in the middle of this letter, and that will be page 2230. Page 2230. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And look at verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So the very purpose of redemption is that we not live for ourselves, but we live in obedience to Him. That's the reason that we were redeemed. That's the love of God, to call us out so that we will be an obedient people. In Romans chapter 3, you see this wonderful description of our justification before God, that it is the blood of Christ interposed for us, not our blood, but His blood, and the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ instead of us. And then Paul asked this question at the end. He says, do we therefore then neglect the law or undermine the law? He says, no, we uphold the law. In other words, having been redeemed, having been brought out of Egypt, having the Red Sea divided for us and being released from our bondage, we now go to the law. Now, the law indeed drives us to Christ because the law shows us our need for Christ. The law shows us the standard for Fellowship with God is perfect obedience. And the law shows us and searches our hearts to show us that we have broken the law, so we're driven to the salvation offered in Christ. But having received that salvation, having come through the Red Sea, having seen what was done for us at Calvary's cross, we now flee to Mount Sinai to get the law again. And you notice that is the chronological order and the logical order and the theological order. We're delivered to Mount Sinai to be given the law. That's what's being said here to the Israelites. Remember, you were brought out of Egypt. You were redeemed. You were saved. You were delivered from your bondage. Now you're being given the law. So don't forget that you were redeemed for this purpose, to go to Mount Sinai. So the law serves both purposes of leading us to Christ and then of having received Christ, taking us forward in Christ and showing us the way to live. And then notice uh, then A, we were brought out of bondage for this purpose. We were redeemed for this very purpose of receiving the law and incorporating it into our lives. And then notice B, verses 46 through 49, he says, and now we're beyond the Jordan. Well, what happened beyond the Jordan? We took partial possession. Remember that two and a half tribes already had received their land from uh, the Amorites defeating Sion and Og, and they took possession of the land. So even before they go in, crossing the Jordan, facing these giants over there and their fortified cities, before that happened, they'd already tasted the pleasure of owning land. Gentlemen, it's the same way with us. If you notice in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13, 14, we've been given the earnest, the down payment of the Spirit. One day we're going to be completely Spirit-guided, Spirit-blessed, Spirit-filled. We'll be in the kingdom of the Spirit with no exception. 
But right now, we live in a broken world that is carnal. And yet, we've already received the down payment. We've already tasted the heavenly glories because the Spirit Himself has come into our lives. So we've taken partial possession. In other words, Moses is saying, you already see what the Lord is going to do. He's already defeating your enemies. He's already giving you your inheritance. You're already seeing some of it. So are we. And so he's simply saying, live for the final consummation of all the glory, the glorious promises of God, because you've already started to taste it. And it's not that you have a new car or a new house or you've got perfect health. You have the life of God in your soul. You have fellowship with Him. It's the life of the Spirit that you're beginning to taste. Well, here he's reminding them, you have begun to receive your inheritance. So here we are. We've been delivered for the purpose of obedience and we're being encouraged to obey because we see the results of it right there. Already we're beginning to taste it. So first of all, our obedience is our purpose in life. That's the reason that we were redeemed. Now secondly, in verses 1 through 5, as we sort of ramp up to the Ten Commandments in verses 10 through 21, I mean uh, 6 through 21, You'll see that our obedience is our love. Moses summoned all Israel and began to preach to them. And he's basically going to show them, look, you're in a covenant relationship. And the way in which you're going to express your love is this way. You know, some of you have read uh, Gary, Gary Chapman's book, Five Love Languages. If you're married or you're trying to get married... You might take a look at that book. It's very helpful. Uh, Gary Chapman's main point that has now been so useful to so many people is this, that everybody wants to be loved, but we all have different languages. And sometimes I'll remind couples, I'll look at the guy and say, man, you're speaking German and she's speaking French. You all think you have the same language. You do not. Uh, There's this huge gap, in case you hadn't noticed, between men and women. But there's a huge gap just between different types of people. And some of us receive love in one way and some people receive it in another. And here's Gary Chapman's point. He says, typically there are five love languages and you have to be aware of what your own native language is and what the native language of your spouse is. Uh, For example, he says, some people, they just feel loved when you just do a deed of service. Just do something for them. It's amazing. They just feel love going all over them. Some people feel love when you just get quality time. Gentlemen, quality time. Some people feel loved when they get words of affirmation, gentlemen. Words of affirmation. Some people feel love when you just put your arm around their shoulder or just hold their hand, just touch them. And some people uh, feel love uh, when they, they get gifts. Gifts, gentlemen. doesn't have to be real expensive, just gifts. Some people really Receive love that way. We all have different languages. And, of course, one of the big differences or one of the problems in marriage, Chapman says, is that we're speaking these different languages. The guy's trying to cut, love her. He keeps bringing her gifts. She doesn't want gifts. She would just like for you to say you love her and that she's a good wife and that she's a good mother and give her words of affirmation. So he, he teaches that you need to know the love language of the other person. You need to know your own love language, not so that you can tell her how to love you, but so that you know what your native instincts are and that you may be speaking a language she doesn't even understand. So the idea of love languages. Now, here's what Moses is saying. God has a love language. You know that? Here's his love language. Obedience. (laughs) It's just real clear. That's his love language. 
And He's God. And He's head of the covenant. He's the suzerain king. You remember how Jesus said it? This, this is what He said. Here's my love language. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Duh. So this is God's love language. Let's get into His language. You may have all different kinds of love language. Maybe your love language is, I love you, Lord. I'm going to sing to you now, Lord. I'm going I'm to serenade you. This is my love language. I like to sing. Or some of you may have uh, a love language. Lord, I'm just going to make a lot of money and I'm going to give you a tenth of it. <laughs> I know you're going to really appreciate that. You just g- keep giving Him gifts. Some of you have a love language that, Lord, I just want to be close. And now you always go to church. I just want to be where you are, Lord. Just always want to be there. That's your love language. The Lord says, good, but you've missed my whole love language. Do what I said. And the Lord says to His people, Lord Jesus, He says, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I said? In the very word Lord means He's the master, He's the sovereign, He's the ruler, and then you go do what you want to do. You keep calling Him Lord, but you keep going doing what you want to do. And here's what Moses is saying. summons all Israel together. He says, let me remind you of something. The Lord has a love language, and the love language is obedience. Now look at the first step in obedience. A. Listen. (laughs) Listen, learn, and do. Look at verse 1. You see the sequence here. Hear, O Israel. Listen, children. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. So, first of all, as my wife used to say to our little children when she was trying to instruct them and they were all over the place, she would say, put your ears on. And what she meant was they had to stop and look at her and do like this. (laughs) You feel like it. Sometimes I feel like I should do that. Just stop and go like this. You know? Listen. Stop. Listen to what he's saying. That's the reason for Bible studies. That's the reason for your personal Bible study. That's really the reason for sermons. Sometimes you can't figure out what the reason for the sermon is. But basically the idea is that you would listen to the Lord. So the first thing is put your ears on and listen. Read his word. Gentlemen, you really need to be reading his word every day. You're in a an intimate relationship with the Lord. You don't go for days, hopefully, without talking with your wife. You're in an intimate relationship with her. You don't go for days, I hope, without talking to your children. You're in relationship with them. Don't go for days without listening to the Lord talk to you. That's the reason for reading the Bible. It's very relational. And it's the only way in which we can speak our love language to Him is to listen to Him, hear His voice. Notice the second thing Moses said in that verse, and you shall learn them. So listen to Him and learn what He's saying. Now, learning what He's saying involves a couple of things. One is remember what He said. You say, well, I'm too old for that. (laughs) I know I'm beginning to understand completely what that means. I can't remember my own children's middle name sometimes. But... So what does that mean? The older I get, the more I have to read because my memory is worse than it was. So we keep reading. The Word keeps going through us. We're listening and learning so that we can hide the Word of God in our hearts. We can meditate upon it in our minds. So we learn it, we remember it, and then we meditate on what we remember. That's how we learn. How do you meditate? You listen to the Word of God. You listen to it as the Word of God, not as just a a nice, interesting historical book, not as a book on theology, not as an ethical guide only. You're listening to it personally from your Father. 
It's a relational word for someone who loves you. And you listen to it that way. And he's speaking personally to you. And here's what you're doing in your meditation. You are saying as you read the Word of God and listen to it, what is He saying to me? What promise does He want me to trust and believe? What cynicism does He want to break through in my heart? What initiative does He want me to take with the people for whom I'm responsible? What initiative does He want me to take toward the poor or toward the outcast or the marginalized? How does He want me to take this Word and put it into practice? I meditate over all that. I've got lots of questions to ask. What does this text mean for me now and in the days ahead? That's meditation. That's the reason that the psalmist says the the righteous man meditates on the Word of God day and night. It's a continual relationship. You heard it at Amen at 6.30 in the morning. And at lunch, you're still thinking, what does this mean for me in my workplace today? And as you drive home, you're meditating. What does obedience mean to me when I drive into the driveway and open that back door and go in the house? What does it mean? You're meditating upon the Word of God. So learning is to remember the Word and to meditate upon it. Now notice it doesn't stop there. Keep reading the verse. And be careful, verse 1, to do them. Careful to do them. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, and when He was teaching on the four soils, He said, be careful how you hear. Because if you hear and put into practice, you will keep what you have. If you hear and do not put into practice, you will lose even what you have. The only way you keep what you have and enjoy the blessing of being in communal relationship with the Father is that you take the Word in, you listen to it, you meditate upon it, and then you act upon it. And it's what you act upon that you actually keep. So the love language is obedience. It starts with listening and then learning and then doing. We do the Word of God. We don't just listen to the Word of God. So... That's the first thing. Listen, learn, do. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, Moses is reminding them of the overarching paradigm of their relationship with God, and it is a covenant. He says, enter into covenant. He says, the Lord our God made a covenant, berit in the Hebrew, with us in Horeb. Now, notice what he says. In case someone were to say, I was not at Horeb, my mommy and daddy were there, but I wasn't there. I'm only 15 years old. I wasn't at Horeb. Notice what Moses says. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. Gentlemen, when the Lord spoke to the apostles 2,000 years ago, and He said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He was not just speaking to 500 people that day who are now dead. He was speaking to you. Moses is saying when God gathers His church, He's speaking to His church of all ages. And we are vitally connected to these people, these Israelites. These are our people. This is our family. And when God was speaking to them at Horeb, He was speaking to you. 
There is a sense in which you were there. Because we are in the loins of Abraham. We are the seed of Abraham. We are his children. We're the children of Israel. Why? You say, I'm not Jewish. How can you call me a child of, of Abraham or a child of Israel? Here's what Paul says. By faith in the Messiah, the seed with the capital S of Abraham, by faith into that seed of Jesus, the son of David, you are therefore grafted in to this family. Okay, so you are a wild olive shoot. You're a wild ox. Okay, we grafted you in and we're nurturing and cultivating you to be a real, a real plant. That's what Paul says in Romans 11. You got grafted into this family, so this is your family, and you were there at Horeb, and you heard his voice through your fathers. So you see that the Middle Eastern way of thinking is we're not just a bunch of individuals. We're connected to this family. For example, that's the reason that we sing some of the songs we do. Why do we sing that song? Of course, that's from Psalm 46, which goes back thousands of years, but it was kind of put to this tune by Martin Luther 500 years ago. Why? We were there in a sense. We are singing the songs of our fathers and of our mothers because we belong to this ancient church. Moses is saying, don't forget, you were at Horeb. You heard the voice to your fathers through your fathers. It's now come to you, and you're the people gathered before God. We need to remember that. We need to teach our children and grandchildren that. That every generation is a generation intimately connected to the Lord, and He's speaking directly to them, not just through others. And notice the nature of the relationship here, the word covenant. Where else do you see the word covenant? Of course, in marriage. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties sealed by blood. It's sealed and guaranteed. It's not a contract. Contracts are good, but they're conditional. You deliver the goods, I'll pay the bill. You don't deliver the goods, I won't pay the bill. Covenant is different. I'm going to deliver the goods. I'm going to pay the bill. And I say to people who are getting married, I recommend you not make arrangements like this. You're going to go broke. If you do, don't promise you're going to do something regardless of the performance of the other party or you will not be in business very long. So there are very unique places where you make covenants. One is with God. The other is in marriage. It's unique. You're promising to do something regardless of the performance of the other party. It's very risky. You better be sure you marry the right other party because you have committed yourself to covenant with her. And that's the reason that marriage covenant is the way it is because God is picturing His relationship with us through human marriage so that we can always have an analogy right here before our face of what it's like to be married to God. And gentlemen, this is very helpful because so many of us from time to time really are treating God as though we're dating. We're kind of going out together. We're talking a little bit with each other. We're checking each other out. We kind of are drawn to Him. We actually like hanging around with Him. We actually from time to time like His family. But there's something we haven't done yet. We haven't gone to the altar and made the vows and made a covenant that says, I'm yours forever and ever. That's called marriage. And a lot of guys are dealing with God like they're in a dating relationship. Here's what you need to do. You've been checking Him out long enough. Let's get engaged, let's get to the marriage altar, and let's have a covenant. And the blessings of God pour out on His people in covenant. When you've made the deal, you've given your life to Him. That's what Moses is saying. Don't forget 
The reason for your problems and the reason for your blessings is that you're married to God. And when he gets really angry, you're his wife. And you're going to feel it. And when he is pouring out his blessings, he's going to start with you because you're his bride. That's the nature of the relationship. Now notice, thirdly, Moses says that this loving, this love language involves standing in awe of God. Moses reminds them, the Lord spoke with you face to face out of the midst of the fire. He is a consuming fire. This is what you're dealing with. He's your groom, but he's also a living fire. Fourthly, Moses says, God has given you a mediator. He is a fire. You're afraid of him. You can't get near him. So God provides a mediator. That's what Moses was doing. Moses was especially called to go into the intimate presence of God with great risk to his own life because God, out of his righteous anger, could strike Moses anytime he wanted to. Moses goes up on behalf of the people to deal with God. He mediates between God and the people with whom God is often angry. Moses is mediating. And you know what kind of a mediator he is. When God threatens to destroy Israel, Moses starts to argue with God. He's like a mediator, like an Arab mediator. He's saying, now God, let's remember something. You put your reputation out here and all the nations are watching. And if you pull these people out of slavery in Egypt and you take them out in the wilderness and zap them, what are you going to look like? Moses knows how to negotiate. And he calls upon God's own glory and his own name and reputation. And God says, okay, I won't destroy you. Go ahead, but I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel. Moses keeps arguing, God, that is not good enough. Our whole glory is to have you in our presence. That's what it means, God, to be your people. Have you forgotten this, God? You said you would come and live among us. You're our glory. If an angel isn't going with us, I mean, if an angel only is going with us, just strike me dead right now. Strike me out of the book. God says, okay, I'll give you my presence. So Moses mediated for us. We needed it. We were afraid of God, and God was going to destroy us, and Moses came in between us. Now, of course, what does Hebrews tell us? We have a mediator better than Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ transcends anything Moses could ever have done. And Jesus is the one who mediates between God and His people. You have an advocate. You have a mediator. You have someone who has your interest at heart. And He pleads your case before the throne of God. And He pays for your sins with His own blood. He pleads the merits of His own blood, as the hymn writer says. So He can go before God, the Father, and say, Look at the value of my own life. Father, it is infinite in its value. And this life has been laid down for these people and you have no just cause for anger against them because your anger has been poured out and fully satisfied in the blood that I poured out on Calvary's cross. He pleads for us. He's a mediator. And Moses is saying to them, don't forget, you need a mediator and you've got a mediator. And furthermore, God's the one who provided the mediator. How do you think Moses got into his role? He was out there 80 years old thinking his life was all washed up. He had no intentions of helping the people of God and God appeared to him in fire in the bush and called him to go back. Against Moses' will, called him to go back to be the mediator for the people of God. God raises up mediators and He raised up His own Son to be the perfect mediator. You have a perfect mediator. You have nothing to worry about. He knows how to plead your case. So trust the mediator that God has provided. Now, look at the heart of this thing, which is the third basic section, 
And we get here to the second statement of the Ten Commandments. The very word Deuteronomy, you know, second statement of the law. First was in Exodus 20 that we studied some years ago. Now we come to it again. And uh, when we did it the first time, we went law by law, if I remember correctly. We're not doing that today. We have 14 minutes to talk about the Ten Commandments. <laughs> it's not quite trust and obey, but it's, it's pretty close. Uh, now look at, look at verses 6 through 21, and I want us to notice uh, three major things. He says to them in verse 6, this is sort of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now there it is. We've already seen that. He's already said, remember, I redeemed you out of there. But look at this next phrase. And this is, I believe, the key to what Moses is telling them about the Ten Commandments in this second statement of the Ten Commandments. He says, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Out of the house of slavery. Which tells us that our obedience is our freedom. Here is the problem with most non-Christians and most Christians when they think about the law. They think about the law as a burden. They think about the law as something that enchains them. The law does restrict us. That's true. Thou shalt not. And thou shalt. That restrains us. But gentlemen, the one who understands the law correctly sees that the law is our liberation. Uh, Of all the books written on the Ten Commandments, and there are a bunch of them, uh, the one whose title I like the most was written back in the 70s, and the title is this, Ten Great Freedoms. Uh, R.C. Sproul says one time he was playing golf with one of his pagan friends that he was witnessing to, and they got to about the 17th hole, and his unbelieving friend said to him, R.C., you know, I, I know you like this religion stuff and you're all excited about it and involved in it and everything. He said, that's great for you. But he said, <clears throat> you know, why, do I, why would I want to become like, like you guys? I, I, you know, I like to drink and party and women. And he said, it would just be a very restrictive life. And R.C. said, yeah, you know, it, it is restrictive. He says, it's kind of like golf. He said, you know, today I've been playing fairly well and I've been hitting it right down the fairway. He says, between the left rough and the right rough. And it's, it's a very restrictive game. If you want to enjoy golf, you've got to stay right down there in the fairway. Now, what I've been noticing about you, you've been over in the trees a lot. And <clears throat> you, you've been over there in the sand, and you've been in the high grass. And you've, you've really worked, worked up a sweat today. Uh, you've, you've really gotten kind of frustrated. And me, I've just been in chains, going right down the fairway every time. It's a very restrictive life. He said, that's the way it is with the law. We think that the one who doesn't have the law is the one in the fairway. Gentlemen, it's just the other way. And some of you have some dramatic illustrations that you can share in your small groups for how you played in the rough and in the trees and in the brooks. And you, you know what it's like to be free from the law. You are in chains. You are back in slavery. Here's what Moses is saying. God has brought you out of that slavery. God has brought you out of a lifestyle where there were many gods. You could legitimately choose Ra, the sun god. You could choose the moon god, the stars god. You could choose the god of the Nile. 
You could choose the god of the cows, the golden calf they made later, remember, of course. You could, you could choose any god you want. That's what you had in Egypt. And in Egypt, those gods, here's what they did for you. You worked 24-7. You never had a break. You were being oppressed and afflicted. Here's what these gods did for you. Wherever you were, they could take your life anytime they wanted to, without cause. If they got tired of you, Israelites, the Egyptians could just take your life. Pharaoh could just eliminate your life without cause. That's how you live. Here's another thing I noticed about Egypt, that your families were being abused. You were slaves, and if someone thought your little teenage girl looked nice, they just took them for themselves, right out of your home. If they thought your wife looked nice, they could have a nice little affair with her. Maybe bring her back, maybe not. If they wanted to use you on a project, they could even divide your families. Does this sound familiar? This is what it was like in Egypt. And you know something else in Egypt? They could take anything of yours they wanted to, or they could give you nothing and not pay for your day's work. That's what they did to you in Egypt. And furthermore, you know what else they did? If they didn't like something you did, they would just get false witnesses to come in and tell a lie about you, and they would have a kangaroo court and act as though it was a just cause to take your life. That's what it was like in Egypt. Now, let me tell you, Moses said, God has brought us out of there. We're not going to live like that anymore. He loves us. He is giving us a new life. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to give you one God because there is only one God. And you're going to worship him. Let me tell you what this God is going to do. He's going to give you a pace of life that is called a restful life. You ever heard of rest? No, we hadn't been real familiar with rest. We've been living over there under the Egyptians. And some of you have Egypt in your hearts and you don't know how to rest because you've been serving the God of pride and greed and materialism and drivenness and trying to prove your identity by your performance. You've been enslaved. And God says to you, I'm going to give you a law that's going to bring you the rest that you need but you can't give to yourself. And let me tell you what else I'm going to do for you. We are going to have homes that are structured and that have recognized authority. And children are going to obey their parents and parents are going to serve their children and we're going to live in integrity in Israel like we didn't in Egypt. And you know what? We're not just going to take people's lives nor their fortunes because we want to. We're going to have just laws where people discuss things and they're arbitrated and judges are put in place and we're not going to be killing each other because we get mad at each other. And we're not going to steal from each other and we're going to stop this kangaroo court business where people are allowed to lie before a jury to get their way and manipulate people. We're going to be free of all that crap. And that's what Moses is saying about the Ten Commandments. Whereas we look at the Ten Commandments, we don't realize what our natural carnal selves would lead to and has led to, that we are enslaved with other laws from other gods. So this is what Moses is doing, is laying down the law, which is to lay down our lifestyle, which is to lay down the character of God and His love for His people. And the love language of God is for us to trust that His laws are for our good. To trust that this is a fatherly act of kindness to give us the Ten Commandments. Rather than seeing him like another Pharaoh that does not have our interest at heart, who's trying to take advantage of us 
And He wants to use us for His own purposes, contrary to our benefit and goodwill. That's what's being required of us, to trust Him. We didn't learn to trust in Egypt. Everybody was taking advantage of us. We would take advantage of ourselves. Everybody was abusing us and tearing us apart. We don't know how to trust. Moses is saying, look, you're in covenant with someone who loves you. Trust His law. And the Lord's love language is that we actually look at His law that way and we trust His kindness to us. And then His love language is, out of that trust, we actually live by these laws. Because we believe that in these laws we find our freedom. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I walk according to your laws because there I find freedom. It's in the NIV. You won't find the ESV. It retranslates it. But the NIV translates it, I walk about in freedom because I walk in your laws. That's probably the biggest paradigm shift that men have to make when they look at the law of God and seek to live out uh, their obedience to Him. Now, first of all, we're free from idolatry. Since the day that God created man on the earth, whether such a, 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 it's a question as to whether such a great thing has ever happened. God is God. The purpose of Israel is to worship their God and to proclaim their God to all the nations. First of all, we're free from idolatry because there is no other God. And Israel now was living in a polytheistic environment. We live in a relativistic environment where it is an act of uh, uh, arrogance for you to say that your God is the only God. Your religion is the only religion. Israel lived in the same environment. God is saying there is no other God before you. So this is monotheistic. But it's not just a theological orthodoxy. It's a practical loyalty. You're loyal to the one true and living God. Secondly, there are no carved images. That is, it's an iconic. An icon is an image. And we are non-iconic or aniconic. No carved images. You won't find in archaeological studies evidence of Israel's idols because all the nations had idols. Israel was commanded not to. Why not? Here's why. God is not like an idol. When you make a carved image, you're making something that is not like God. Therefore, you're bowing down to something that is not like Him. The purpose of the icon is to give us something like God. But Moses is saying it's not like God. Why not? Because God is alive. The image is not. Because God speaks. And as the psalmist says, the image is mute and deaf. God is active. He moves. I was just telling you how He's been on the move for 30 years in Iran. He's active. He's doing things. Images do not. They sit there. Images are to be a comparison to what God might be like, but God is incomparable. So he's basically saying, don't worship something that is not God. And then, more importantly for us, no idol of the heart. Which we had time to look at several instances, including Paul's in Ephesians 5 and Colossians uh, uh, 3, where Paul teaches that greed is idolatry. As we saw earlier in our studies, our hearts are idol factories. Uh, let me just give you one book that you might want to look at on this topic. Tim Keller just published a book, I think it was last year or year before, on counterfeit gods. Counterfeit gods by Tim Keller. It's just a little thing. You can read it in a day. 
He's like, and there Tim shows us how idols are not just physical idols as they were in the days of Israel. But as the prophet said, we make idols in the heart. Ezekiel said, you have idols in your heart. And our hearts produce all kinds of idols. Popularity, success, greed. No idols of the heart. Now, secondly, not just freedom from idolatry, but freedom from exhaustion. And quickly here we see the Sabbath provides spiritual rest, physical rest, economic rest. And rest was to come upon the whole land because God's people were in the land. So even the animals benefit. As Solomon says, a gentle man, a righteous man, is gentle even to his animals. You don't kick the dog when you're in covenant with God. Everything around you, the entire environment, enjoys peace and rest. We don't abuse the land in our farms. We don't pollute our rivers. We don't trash our streets. Everything's blessed around us. And we take care of the environment around us. And especially the people that are around us who are in the environment. We take care of them. Because blessing comes to the nations through us. And one of those blessings is rest. And so if you're employing people, you're concerned about their rest. Those of you who are in investment banking and you have some of these interns come in, you don't teach them to work 80 hours a week, do you? I hope not. Because you're not teaching them very well how to live life. And you're not only responsible to teach them about mergers and acquisitions. You're responsible, gentlemen, to teach them how to live. And if you are a workaholic and everybody around you is acting like a workaholic, there's no rest in your life nor in your business. You don't know how to recreate with your people. You don't know how to counsel them to take some time off. Then you're acting like a pagan who has another God. This God solves exhaustion. This God brings rest and gives us freedom from what we used to have in Egypt when we were driven by other gods. Thirdly and lastly, you'll, you'll notice that there's freedom from darkness. We don't have time to look at all these. Let me just give them to you. From breakdown of the family, we're free from that. We've got laws that show us how to live. Fathers are taught to be servants of all of, and Husbands are taught to die for their wives. We've got laws for the family. From social injustice, and the prophets, of course, speak much of this. From murderous tyranny, from economic exploitation. We're delivered. We're free from that darkness. And believe me, uh, one thing you learn as you travel the world, especially those world, the parts of the world that have not experienced the power of the gospel dominantly in their culture, you find all kinds of darkness. And from malicious perjury. And the reason we put the third commandment here that says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is that often, as you find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord's name was taken upon oneself as we gave witness in court that we swore by the name of God. Don't do that in vain. And so don't give false testimony. When we lie about other people or gossip, we are taking the Lord's name in vain because His name is on us and we're using lying lips to get our way. This is the love language of God, that we would obey His commandments because we trust that these commandments are our freedom. And lastly this, gentlemen, you know very well, you cannot do this by the power of your own moral will. 
If you are not casting yourself upon the mercy of the Lord, acknowledging that you do not keep His commandments by your own nature, that you need His forgiveness, and if you're not looking to Him and asking for His Spirit to come in and take over your life, you're not going to enjoy these freedoms. These freedoms are only enjoyed when you're free from the guilt of violating them and when you are freed by the Spirit. Because as Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You only get freedom by the Spirit of God who brings the freedom, takes up residence in your heart, and moves you by affection for Him and by desire to please Him and to fulfill your very purpose in life. It's by the indwelling Spirit in your life. Ask Him in today. Receive the gift of forgiveness by Calvary's cross and ask the power of the Spirit to come into your life. There is how you walk in the law that grants freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank You for setting us free from Egypt. May we now take possession of what You've given us and live out this glorious life of freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Bless you.